Well, it's been said that there are two types of people in the world. There are people who split people into two groups and the people who don't. Um, so, thanks. That, that took a second, didn't it? Okay. Um, no, no, anyway, but we are going through the book of Romans, as we said, chapter 4. And Paul here is kind of drawing this distinction between these two types of people. He's talking about two different groups and two different ways to get to what we all want. And what we all want, of course, the ultimate goal is righteousness. It's heaven. It's salvation. It's seeing God face to face. It's being able to cry out, holy, 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 um, to the Lord and to know him. And what Paul has been doing in Romans is, is saying that there's two ways really to get there. Two options that people would have. It's those who think that you can get there by works, by law, by, um, you know, the, the works, the, the good works that you would do. And there's those who think you get there by grace and through faith. And so as we're, as we're looking at these two little options here, what happens in chapter four is Paul is kind of using uh, Abraham, who's a biblical character way back in Genesis, as an example, kind of an illustration of what it looks like to have the kind of faith because obviously he's saying grace and faith is the way that we would get salvation. It's not by works and law. But what he's saying is, is Abraham is our wonderful example of what it looks like to have that kind of faith that would, that would help us to be righteous, to, to attain to God's promises. So we're going to talk a lot today about this word promises, right? And he's saying that the faith that saves has way more to do with the object of that faith than it does the subject of the faith. It has way more to do with the, the object, meaning the one who's giving the promise out, than the, the strength of the one who's receiving the promise, or the one who would believe it. Um, let me illustrate this way. You, you know that, you know, obviously, we've all had promises made to us. A lot of them you know, have been broken, whether it's by job or employer or spouse or friend or parents or things like that. And we, we all kind of inherently know, right, that the validity of the promise depends way more on the one who's giving it, right? Uh, there's certain people that you can't trust, and you know that, right? And you get mad at yourself when you trust them again. You feel like Charlie Brown running up on the football and Lucy saying, I won't pull it away, you know? And then you run up and you kick again, and like Charlie Brown, you fly. Okay, that, if you're younger, maybe you don't remember the Charlie Brown cartoons, but, but Lucy would always pull the ball away, even though she promised not to do it. And then, you know, when we believe those kinds of people that can't be trusted, then we get mad at ourselves, right? Why don't I trust them again? But then there's other people who, when they say something, their word is gold. You take it to the bank and you know that they're promised. So it, the promise actually has way more to do with the person giving it than our ability to believe it. So when we talk about salvation and we talk about heaven, we're saying that this is way more about God being faithful and able as he gives promises than it is our, the strength of our belief. And so the big idea today is this, is that the gospel is putting your faith in, the, in who God is rather than what we do. It's, this is way more about who God is more than it is what we do. And so we're going to see through this illustration of Abraham and his life that we receive the promise of heaven and righteousness and salvation by grace through faith, not by law and works. And so there's a wonderful guy, Ray Stedman, who kind of broke down the passage. I like the way he did it, so we're just going to use his outline. Uh, number one, we're going to talk about what faith is not. Number two, we're going to talk about what faith does. Number three, we're going to talk about what faith is. And number four, we're going to talk about who faith helps. And this, of course, is on the app. If you want to kind of look through the app, uh, there's some notes in there for you. So let's go ahead and jump in with number one. Number one is what faith is not. Okay, the first thing is what faith is not is it's not righteousness by law. So as Paul is looking at these two different groups, he's saying that there's really those two options. It's law, religion, works, or it's grace through faith. 
And so, of course, he's making the case then that the promise of salvation in heaven, the promise that God is giving, is, comes through faith, not by law and works. So you can see it here in verse 13. Warning here. This is a lot of like kind of muddy Bible talk. You really have to like think about it, the way he writes this, I think. And so do your best and we'll try to explain it. But uh, it, it's just, when you at first read, it's, sometimes it's a little difficult. But verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if the adherents of the law who are, who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Okay, so in verse 14 here, what he's saying is that if it's law and works that bring the promise, then faith is worthless. We wouldn't need faith because you can earn it, right? You can get yourself to heaven. So what he's saying is, Abraham didn't earn it by the law and his works. He earned it, or he gained it by faith. Well, faith in what? Faith in the promise. Well, what's the promise? The promise goes all the way back to Genesis 12. So let's look at the story of, of Abraham here in Genesis 12. This is a wonderful promise. I mean, this is a great deal. You would want God to come to you and say, I'll make you into a great nation and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those. Um, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's a pretty fantastic promise, right? So you'll notice that's Genesis 12. And then three chapters later, Genesis 13, I'm sorry, 15, you've got where God says, Abraham believed God and it was credited, credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham believed the promise. Three chapters later, it's saying he was counted as righteous. Why? Because he believed in the promise. And of course, that's reiterated in Romans chapter four earlier on. Now understand, when God says that Abraham was righteous, that's centuries before he gave the law to Moses on the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Centuries before. See, faith comes first and then the law. It's the same way with our Christian life, right? You believe in God and then you obey. We don't obey God and do enough to make ourselves acceptable to God and then, and then we're good. No, you believe first and then you obey. Righteousness with Abraham was given, righteousness was given to Abraham 430 years before Moses had it in the law, which means the law cannot promise righteousness. So let's illustrate this. Uh, anybody here like a, did, did, growing up maybe do track? Maybe like high jump, anything? You did Wayne? Long jump, perfect. All right, good old Wayne. Okay, so Wayne, I'll make you a promise. If you come on up, Lisa, it's okay. He can raise his hand. Lisa's pulling his hand out. Wayne, don't embarrass me. No, that's a, no but Wayne, here's the thing. If, if I make you a promise, if you can come up on this stage right here um, and, and jump and touch the ceiling, I'll give you $1,000. <laughs> oh, okay, that's the reason why. If I was a high jumper, then I could reach you, right? No, but, but here's the thing. Like if I had made that offer to anybody out here, right, uh, and said, if, I'll give you $1,000 if you can reach the ceiling, you would be like, I'm not doing that, right? Why? It's, it's not because you don't believe that I would give you $1,000. I really would. I really would. But the, the problem is you would say, well, you're asking me to do something that's beyond natural strength. You're asking me to do something that nobody could do. Therefore, the promise doesn't mean anything. It's like worthless. It's useless, right? So what I'm saying is this, is that the law that was given to Moses, the, Ten Commandments, the 613 commandments, you know, 10 of which were on the tablets, right? With the law in the Old Testament cannot give you salvation. Well, okay, it could, but you'd have to be 100% perfect. 
in thought, word, and deed, never messing up. You'd have to flawlessly obey all of God's commandments and do so with a loving spirit your entire life, never failing even to think something wrong. So if you did that, then you could attain salvation by works. But we're like, okay, well, that, see, but the promise, that promise means nothing because it's something completely impossible, completely unattainable by somebody's natural strength. Even, that's, even, that's even harder to do than touching the ceiling standing on the stage. So what happens is the promise cannot come through the law. It has to come through faith. And that's what Paul is saying here. And this is why every other religion, you guys, that relies on works ultimately fails. Every other religion in the, in the world other than Christianity. You see, you could um, follow the five pillars, the eightfold path, have strong karma or impeccable wokeness, and, and you would never be able to be perfect enough to, thank you for that little laugh, that's good. Uh, but you could never, that's why we're all sinners. Nobody could ever be perfect. That's why our motto is no perfect people allowed, right? Because if you're perfect, you think you're perfect, you're never, don't even darken the door, don't even bother, right? Because we're just gonna tell you that you're not perfect. And that's the point, is that we're not perfect. And so that's why we need faith and not law. Everybody's with me so far, a little bit? Okay, all right, good. Now, you may be asking me, well, okay, well then why would God give the law? Why would he make these commands? Why would he tell us to be obedient? Why would God give us the law if he knew that we could never obey it? And see, that's a great question. I'm so glad you asked. Um, Because here's the thing is that the law's job, when God is giving us this law, its job, the Bible says, is to guard and to instruct us that we're sinners and we need a savior. Let me flip over to another area where Paul's writing in Galatians chapter 3, 24, 25. He says, so then the law was our guardian or tutor. Tutor is kind of like, like schoolmaster. Until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So he's saying the law's job was to guard us and instruct us and to be our tutor to show us that we're sinful. First thing I learned about the Bible uh, growing up was the Ten Commandments. Learned it in CCD class, you know, memorized the Ten Commandments. Second thing I learned about the Bible was that I don't te- keep the Ten Commandments. Okay, I was just five minutes observing my life and I realized, oh my gosh, I don't do this at all, right? Because, you know, thou shalt not bear false witness or lie, right? And so I know that I had one time lied and told my mom that I didn't swear at my brother, when of course I did. Okay, I know as far as stealing, I know that I stole Jeff's, my best friend Jeff Stewart, had, we had Star Wars cards growing up. I mean, like, I wish I still had them, but these one of those Star Wars cards, and there was one of the blue set that I didn't have, and he had it, and I, he wouldn't trade it to me, so I just stole it. Okay, so I knew, I, like, I did that, right? Coveting. I, every day of my life, I wish I could play baseball like Joey Valenzuela. Okay, um, honoring your mother and father. Who's gonna do it? Come on now. I mean, I know that uh, like every other kid, I didn't listen to my mom and dad all the time. Using God's name in vain. Boy, that's really hard on the playground when you're trying to be a big boy, you know, and you, to not use God's name in vain. Keeping the Sabbath. It's like as much as I would have I liked to blame my dad for not taking me to church. Forget it. You know, I know I miss church and stuff. It's like, well, at least I didn't murder until you read the New Testament where Jesus is saying, well, if you have anger towards somebody and you hate them in your heart, then it's as if you murdered them. I'm like, dang it! Because I'm pretty sure I hated Ronnie Arnold because he would constantly cheat at kickball. And one time I said, you're a cheater, and he punched me for it. And I hated him. Okay, so here's the thing. I'm like eight years old. 
and I can't even keep the Ten Commandments. Right? Anybody with me? Like, you know, I'm like, I don't have a chance. There's no way. There's no way I could justify myself by the law. But this is the law now doing exactly what it was supposed to do. I learned the Ten Commandments, and it was instructing me, guarding me about my sin. You see, the law was not a list of rules for me to keep to make me good enough to get to heaven. No, it's a guardian, a tutor to show me how sinful I am and my need for Christ's forgiveness to drive me to grace through faith. That's the purpose of the law. So stop asking the law, the Old Testament, the rules, to do what they're not supposed to do. Stop thinking it's good works that can make you acceptable to God. They can't. Rather, it's the opposite. Those, that law is supposed to drive you to the, arm, the arms of Christ to say, Lord, I can't be good enough to be acceptable to you. That's the purpose. Now, I know a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Mike had shared a story from years ago I, that happened in kids' church. Let me just explain myself a little bit on it, okay? Because what happened is, is I asked the kiddos, I said, uh, it was the older kids, probably about a fourth grader at the time, I said, why does God love you? And this really cute little girl, she goes, because I'm amazing, you know? And it was really cute. It was. Um, but I, I said, I'll stand by it, but I said, I said, well, Sweetie, you're not amazing. And all the kids were like, and it was just like, like apparently there were gasps in the audience here when Mike said, how can a kid's pastor say that? Explain. Okay, I said, you're not amazing. Actually, um, you're loved, but God is amazing because he loves you even though you sin. That's the way. That's, God's amazing. You're not. Okay, so like, now listen. If you remember Michelle Lito, she used to call me Pastor um, Heatwave because she said I'd melt the snowflakes. But whatever. Uh, but, it's, that's, but, 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 but understand, this is the theology behind it because this is what I'm saying. Listen, tell your kids that they're loved and, and they're forgiven. Um, but also tell them about Jesus' perfection. Like, tell them that God is amazing even though, because, because he loves you even though we're sinners. See, you've got to learn to tell your kids that they're a rebellious little sinner, just like you <laughs> and just like me, right? Be, and because with that, we both need a savior because if all you do, and I'm serious with this, if all you do is you tell your kids how amazing and perfect just as they are, then I'm afraid you're kind of setting them up to try to earn heaven and righteousness by works of the law. You see, and this is what I found is that one day they're going to realize, well, I don't live up to God's perfection. My works aren't good enough. And they're not going to feel loved by God because they're going to know that they didn't perform well enough. I got to think that so much of the anxiety and depression in our culture, especially in young people, is because their whole life they've been told how amazing they are. But then they know they're not. And they can see their own sin, and so they kind of feel like a fraud. And they look around, especially on the fake Instagram world, you know, and they look and they see, well, I'm not as perfect as they are. And comparing themselves, they get anxiety over that, or get depressed because they're not measuring up to the amazing thing that they think that they were told that they were always were. No, tell your kids that they're loved and forgiven, but be really careful about telling them that they're a perfect princess or they're flawless just the way they are because that's not the gospel. I, I, I kind of think you're hurting them by setting them up to try to then earn righteousness by works because that's how they've gained their acceptance with you. You see, listen, you know this, the most insufferable adults that you know. 
You work with these people. <laughs> They're the ones who still believe all the things their mama thinks about them and how amazing their mama thinks they are, right? I, I, here's the thing, I have a great mom sitting right there. My mama loves me, I know that, my mom's terrific. I'm not nearly as terrific as my mom thinks I am, okay? And I'm, I'm secure enough to say that and admit, I, dang it, I'm not even as great as my dog thought I was. <laughs> if we could just be who our dog thinks we are, but we're not. No, instead, I'm a rebellious sinner against the holy God and I've broken his perfect law innumerable times. And let me tell you, it is the most liberating thing to be able to admit that. Because now I am free from trying to measure up and earn God's promise by my works because I'm so amazing. You see, God's law schooled me tutored me, guarded me about my sin and how I fall short. And then it taught me how flawless and perfect Jesus is because he completely fulfilled the law. And see, now I receive the promise of righteousness in heaven by faith in him, not by my works. You see, you teach your kids that and they're gonna be well-adjusted and secure and joyful and saved, (laughs) okay? Look at number two then. What, is, what faith does, it delivers the promise. It delivers the promise. Now, you would ask a bunch of people what faith, what the you know, definition of faith is. What is faith? You'll get a bunch of different answers and stuff. Some people think it's this really general kind of feeling that God is real, like that, oh, the man upstairs. Or they'll say something, well, I'm active in my religion. So like, I'm getting more active in my faith. Or you would have some people who think, well, just have faith. And it's kind of this wishy-washy, feel-good, you know, um, positive thinking kind of thing. Or you would think it's um, at some point you prayed a prayer and asked Jesus in your heart, and so now I have faith. Well, it, I think it means way more than all of those things. So the definition we're going to use is surrendered trust. Faith is surrendered trust. Now, if we look at the life of Abraham, he trusted a very specific promise that God had given him, right? I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you as many descendants as there are sand on the seashore and stars in the sky. So imagine in your old age trusting in God, that he's going to give you a son, bless the whole world through that son. He's going to move you 550 miles away to a land you've never been, away from your family and friends, to establish a homeland for all these descendants that he's going to give you. <laughs> Imagine late in your life believing that and then doing it. See, that's a really bold move on Abraham's part. It's not halfway faith. That was full surrendered trust. I mean, let me ask you, what would it take for you to believe that? To believe a promise like that and then adjust your whole life to it. So Abraham is believing that he, proving that he really did believe the promises of God. Let's look at verse 16. It says, that's why faith, I'm sorry, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. Catch that part. Who shares the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. So remember, when we're talking about the the Roman church that Paul's writing to, we're saying this is a a church that's got a bunch of Jews who were, you know, from, descended from Abraham. They thought that they had this wonderful promise. They thought they had all the, the, they were the the people of God. So God loved them kind of more because they were the people of God and they had these wonderful promises. It's full of the Jews, but it's also full of Gentiles, of Romans, non-Jews, right? But when, this verse here where it says offspring, Abraham's offspring, It's not talking just to the Jews. What does it say? It says, to those who had the faith of Abraham. That's who he's talking to. 
not talking just to Jews. He's talking to Jews and Gentiles, both those who had the faith of Abraham. That's why I say that faith delivers the promise. It's about a right relationship with him, not just your genes. So two weeks ago when Pastor Mike was talking about the first half of chapter four, he was saying that, remember we said, Abraham was counted righteous by his faith. He received the promise by faith. Did you know that that was years before he was even circumcised? And circumcision, remember, is like kind of the sign of your Jewishness. So here, in some sense, Abraham was counted righteous even before he was Jewish. So obviously, it's not about just being Jewish. It's not about your genes. So we've seen the kids' song, right? Father Abraham, and many sons. Anybody? And many sons, and Father Abraham. And I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Now, so when we talk about these many sons that Father Abraham would have, it's not just about being Jewish that makes you one of his, I am one of them and so are you. It's having that kind of faith. It's way more about being a children of the promise through faith, not the genes. So, by the way, a little sidebar here. Be very careful about saying that everybody is a child of God. That's not true. We are all creations of God. We are all made in God's image. Uh, Imago Dei, we are all loved by, cared for by God, but we are not all children of God. John 1, 12 says, but to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he has given the right to become children of God. The right to become a child of God is those who believe in his name. And so Abraham's offspring, his children, the children of God are those who receive it by faith. So just be careful. Don't, don't say that everybody's a child of God. They're not. They're creations of God, okay? Okay. Now, this promise that was made to Abraham, again, looking at verse 17, where it says he's gonna be the father of many nations. Was, was Abraham the father of all nations? This, you can answer this one. Yeah, is that a yes or a no? Yes, no? No, no, he's not. He was not the father. Of, he was, you know, genetically, um, ge- um, yeah, genealogically, he fathered a few nations, but not all nations. But then remember when it's talking about who's going to be in heaven, is it just a few nations that are going to be in heaven? It will be all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. So again, what we're saying is not about being genealogically related to Abraham. It's about those who believe in the promise. It's faith that delivers the promise, which is a really exciting news for people who are not Jewish and who are not law keepers. Like many of us are not Jewish and none of us are law keepers. Okay, so that's pretty sweet then that it's by faith that we get the promise. Because even if you were Jewish, you're not gonna be a law keeper, right? Okay, so let's look at number three. We're gonna spend a little more time here. So Number three, then, is what faith is. So what does this faith, this faith that brings righteousness, and what, is it, what does it look like? Well, it's this. It's being fully convinced that God is able to do what he promised. So let me ask you, what is going on in Abraham's life when God gave him those promises in Genesis 12? Well, his family was Babylonian, right? Remember, he was from the Ur of the Chaldees. His father had moved north to an area called Haran. So imagine being Abraham way up in the northern Mesopotamia. You're 75 years old. You got no kids. And God comes and promises you that there's gonna, you're going to have nations descending from you that in a land that's 550 miles away. And he wants you to move away from all your family and friends and go establish a homeland there. He's going to give you a great name and blessing. Bless those who bless you. Curse those who curse you. And the whole world is going to be blessed through you. That's a pretty sweet deal. Now, you may, if you were Abraham, you might believe that initially, like kind of wishful thinking, like, oh, that would be awesome. Thank you, Lord. That'd be great. 
But could you sustain that over the next 25 years until the promise actually came? It was given to him when he was 75 and Isaac wasn't born until he was 100 years old, right? What would make him believe that his offspring is gonna be as numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the heavens? When he describes himself, and you'll see, he describes himself, his body as good as dead. And my wife, Sarah, her womb is as, as barren and as good as dead. Like for you, receiving that promise from God, there's no logic, there's no common sense, there's no rationality. You couldn't even wish that. Like to, to get yourself to try to believe that. But if you did believe it, that would take a lot of faith, my friends, right? It would. Because there's no sensibility there. You see, when God created the Jews, he created the Jews out of nothing. It's not like God, you know, he calls a Babylonian to birth his people. So it's not like God looked around at all the people on the earth and he looks and he sees the Jews who are already this huge nation. He goes, ooh, I like them best. I want them on my team. Like, like that's not what happened. If Abraham had had uh, this massive family already of the coolest, godliest people on earth, and then God picked them to be on his team, then the Jews might think, well, we kind of deserve that. You know, look, look how cool and godly we are. But if that was the case, that sounds a lot like law. That sounds a lot like works. That doesn't sound very much like grace to me at all. No, God created the Jews out of nothing, out of a Babylonian, <laughs> out of a dead womb of Sarah and, and Abraham's non-existent fertility. He just speaks it into existence, just like he created the universe. The Bible says he spoke the universe into existence out of nothing. That's what God's election and his calling is. It's the same with us. He calls our faith out of nothing. Because look at verse 17. It said, in the presence of, of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. See, Abraham believes. He goes, I know God can call into existence the things that don't exist. So he can take a 75-year-old man with an infertile wife and make a promise of a nation and then make him wait 25 years to receive the promise. Like, that's so out of bounds. Like, there's, if you saw that, there's no like, oh, yeah, sure, that's believable. Right? You would never. God loves to just promise something and then deliver the impossible. <laughs> There's no way Abraham would say, oh yeah, I deserve that. That makes sense. I could see that happening for him to, to have as many descendants as stars in the sky, sand on the seashore. In that situation, it's really just hoping against hope. So verse 18, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, like I said, right? Since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Barren, and it's kind of the implication that it's dead as well. See, for Abraham, the promise didn't have to do on how much, didn't deal with how much he believed it. It was based on the authority of the one who was giving it. Like this promise is completely crazy and ludicrous and out of bounds unless the object of the promise, the one making the promise, was an almighty God capable of doing it. It's crazy unless that God is the one who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that didn't exist. See, it has way more to do with who God is, the object of the faith. So let me illustrate this. This is one of my illustrations that I like to do. Let's say I'm on the edge of a frozen lake, okay? and the ice is about that thick. Okay, and I'm getting ready to walk on. I gotta get over there. I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk on it. Let's say I have all the confidence in the world. I just 
<laughs> Fat boy going to fall through the ice. Okay? So that's what's going to happen. I'm going to fall right through the ice. Why? Because it's not about how much faith I have in the ice. It's about the object of my faith, which is the ice is that thick. Or you could have 10 foot thick ice and you could not have very much faith at all. You'd be like, right? And, and just barely get on there and shift your weight. But is that ice going to hold you at 10 feet thick? Of course it is. So see, it has way more to do with the ice, the thickness of the ice, than it does the strength of your own faith in that ice. So that's the point. It's, this is way more about the one making the promises than it is our faith to believe it. So these next verses, oh, I'm sorry. Um, Abraham had the choice then to believe one of two poss- impossibilities. He it really has to believe one of these two. Either that he could believe his eyes and the human impossibility that at 99 years old, his wife's gonna get, pre- or he's gonna make his wife pregnant. Or he could believe in the impossibility of God breaking his word to him and lying. But either way, something impossible has to happen. And he says, I'd much rather it be the impossibility. I'm gonna trust the impossibility of God lying to me. So these next verses, verse 20 through 21, they mean a lot to me. To me, this is like the meat of the whole passage. Um, These were memory verses for me when I was in college. I was in a group and we're all memorizing these verses. So I didn't have any idea at the time what depth these verses would have for me. I was kind of new to my salvation. So I didn't understand it and stuff until the end of 1997, where Christy and I had been married for about three and a half years. We were ready to have kids. I always wanted four kids. All right, I'll settle for three. But, you know, I I want four kids and um, felt like God had given me that desire, put that desire in my heart. Uh, For me, it's kind of the strained relationship with my dad. I wanted to be a dad, be a great dad, start a new legacy, have a big old family, that kind of thing. And uh, nothing right away. Like it wasn't happening right away. Okay, no biggie, no biggie. I was busy two years into a new church, going to seminary, life was busy. And all my family and friends are all having kids and stuff. I'm happy for you. That's great. And confident, of course, that it's going to happen for us. Well, three years later, still trying. Each month, it's like, each month, it's like a slot machine, right? You're a couple days late. You feel like you just pulled the thing. It's like, it's like seven, seven, a bell, you know? And it's just because you just, that's how it feels if you've ever gone through infertility. And by this time now, everybody's on their second child. And I know everybody and friends and family are afraid to ask us all about it. And at the time, I was a youth pastor in Livermore. And... Um, in our ministry, uh, our youth ministry, there, during that three-year period, there were nine youth that got pregnant out of wedlock. Nine. That's hard to take, you know? Uh, I felt like my desire to have four kids was a good desire and that God had given it to me. I'm like, come on, Lord. I'm trying to do your work. I'm being committed to ministry. I'm trying to be, you know, a good husband. And, and I want to be a good father. You know, we're trying to do everything right. We married as virgins. We're trying to just have a family. All this kind of thing. You know, trying to live right. And if I was to be the older brother in the prodigal son story and compare myself with everybody else around me, I was like, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than a lot of these people. <laughs> like, I deserve this. This ain't fair. You know what I'm saying, right? Some of you guys have been there. Some of you, some of you live there. Um, and, and here's the thing. And I do. I'm saying me. I live there. But so at the time I was living in Livermore and it was like probably October and, and we had a gazebo in the front of our little rental. And so I was in there praying with the Lord, kind of crying out. It's just a whole mixture of anger and confusion and sadness, betrayal, loneliness, all that stuff mixed in, right? And I'm talking to the Lord and I, and I urge you when you're having these difficulties, you talk with the Lord. He's got big shoulders. He knows what's going on. He can handle it. Just tell him what you're thinking and feeling if you're struggling, okay? 
Um, but this verse came to mind. Now, I remember I had memorized it years before and it came to mind. And it, was, and it says, you know, yet he, Abraham, did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God had the power, persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. And I was like, okay, Lord, I'm fully persuaded that you have the power to bring about what you promised. So I'm standing in the entry of my gazebo and I'm telling God this verse that he told me, like you told me, you prom- like this is your word. <laughs> I'm just telling you back. And the moon and the clouds were there, the big full moon, the clouds were kind of shifting. And I was asking God to help me have faith reciting this verse to him. But I remember, then it stuck to me. I was like, well, but Abraham had a promise. Like maybe I could wait 25 years if I had a promise, but I ain't got a promise. So what am I supposed to hold on to, right? You didn't promise me anything. I better be careful. I looked up and I'm telling you, as real as it is right here, the clouds in front of the moon there formed this perfectly shaped little, like a baby in a womb, like this little fetus in a womb. And I looked at it for a second and I go, oh my gosh, like what the heck? And I looked down and I looked back up and then it was a little handprint, okay? And I looked down again. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, am I seeing what I'm seeing? And I looked back up again and it all shifted and gone away. And I had no explanation, but I know what I saw. And I said out loud to the Lord and I go, I'll take it for now. You know, I was, I, if that's kind of your promise to me and I felt like it kind of was, right? But I had a promise to cling to and my faith was strengthened and, you know, it would be two years later, we adopted my son at birth. And, um, but having even just that little bit of promise made it a lot easier to deal with it with my little bit of faith. Because I knew who God was, right? It's not about my faith. It's about his ability to do what he had, what he had promised and, and have the power. So see, in Genesis 18, then now Abraham's 99, okay? So it's 24 years after the promise. And the Lord comes and visits Abraham and he tells him, he says, I promise you next year at this time, I'm gonna come back and you're gonna have a son. Well, his wife, Sarah, was in the tent. She's eavesdropping, listening in, right? And what does she do? Anybody? She laughs about it. She laughs about it. And the Lord tells Abraham, you know, husbands, you know, if you've ever had to like give an answer for what your wife just did, you're like, oh, you know, because then the Lord's like, well, why did Sarah laugh? And Abraham's like, Uh, you know, and then he's like, and then the Lord says, why did she laugh and say, well, I really have a child now that I'm old. And then the Lord says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Lord asked Abraham that. See, you could almost hear God's heart grieve right there. He's like, Abraham, what have I, have I done anything to make you not trust me ever? So in verse 20, It's got those words there. It says, Abraham did not waver through unbelief. Okay, now when you know, if you know the Abraham story, did it seem a little bit like Abraham wavered through unbelief? (laughs) Okay, let's go back over the story if you don't know it. Um, He got impatient over those 25 years and, and had a child with his wife's handmaiden, Hagar, being impatient. That seems like a little wavering. Um, he twice lied about Ab- uh, his wife, Sarah, being his sister so that she could kind of you know, temporarily marry somebody else. And I don't know if he's just trying to say, well, maybe this other king, this foreigner king's thing can get my wife pregnant. It'll count as my kid. You know, so there's a lot of ways that he's working in the flesh to try to make these things happening, acting like a ding dong. And so ultimately though, so he seems like he wavered in his faith, but I think what, the, what Paul's saying here is he didn't waver on the promise though. 
He did stupid things along the way and he fell, but he got up again. So faith is not perfection. It's just getting back up and coming back and believing the ultimately that God had the power to do what he had promised. And I think that's what it is. Abraham had faith that God could do what he promised, even though he was being a ding dong along the way, making these mistakes. Because he believed that God could, could um, give life to a dead womb, call into existence something that was not. And he knew that nothing was too hard for the Lord. So for me, those three years, boy, I sure doubted. I fussed a lot. Um, but I never really lost faith in who God was and what he could do. And you know, somebody had asked us early on in the process, said, if you're more concerned about your child looking like Jesus than you, then you should adopt. And I was like, well, man, that's me. I mean, what, why would I want to put this on some kid? <laughs> you know, and, and, uh, and I'm like, hey, maybe my life isn't what I scripted, but you know that God laughs at you when you make plans. Because he's like, I got something different for you, so nice try. But God delivered on his promise, and I have a son, because nothing's too hard for the Lord. And that's what faith is. It's being fully convinced that God can do what he promised. Okay. Can I give you a bit of warning, though? A little caution about promises is this. Be careful about what you consider as a promise from God. See, the Bible's full of all kinds of great promises that you can take to the bank because God is rock solid, 10 foot thick ice that you can count on. But I found that a lot of people will make claim promises that God never promised. See, and just because you want something and you feel like it's a good desire doesn't mean that God promised it. And you can't get angry at God because he didn't give you something on your wish list that he never promised to give you. So be careful about taking your wishes and applying them to God as if they were promises. And that's what I did. I thought my desire for four kids was from God. I was like, well, God, you must have given me this desire. And it was kind of like a promise to me so that infertility felt like a betrayal. But the problem was he never promised it and he didn't owe that to me. And I was grumbling about it and I ought not to have. I'm gonna give you a great story along these lines. Numbers chapter 11, you should read it, it's great. I love the book of Numbers for these reasons, but Moses is leading the people out of, out of Egypt to go to the promised land. Okay, the whole idea of promise is there. They'd been slaves for 400 years and now they're walking through the desert on their way, but of course they're just grumbling about all the food they don't have. Well, when we were in Egypt and we were slaves, we had cucumbers and leeks and onions and meat to eat. Now all we have is this manna. I mean, here in the middle of the desert and God gives us food every day. <sighs> Can you believe it? You know, so they're griping about that. And, and it's, it's crazy. The story sounds really crazy until you read it and you think, I probably would have done the same thing. Of course you would have. But in verse, um, verse 20 of chapter 11, God calls their complaining about his provision. He actually calls it, he says that they're rejecting me. In fact, in the Hebrew, the word actually says despising me. So hear this, when we grumble about the way that God provides for us, by God's word here, it's as if he takes it as if we're rejecting him and despising him. <sighs> Feel the weight of that. See, I, I know what, what would happen is all of us in here would say, oh, no, 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 Lord, I, I trust you. <laughs> I'm not rejecting you. I certainly don't despise you. I just, <laughs> I'm not saying that at all, Lord. I just kind of wanted you to do it this way. Right? Well, friends, if you tell God what you want and then you tell him the way you want him to do it, well, that doesn't require very much faith at all now, does it? 
You've made God the universe of the universe into a genie and a lamp doling out wishes. Nope. Any promises that he makes, he will bring about in his way. And that's it. So to the degree that you don't like it or you grumble about it, I think is the degree to which you lack faith. And you don't believe the one, that the one who promises those things, the ends, can bring it about in the means that he wants to. This is a great quote by Gene Edwards. Wonderful book, but he says this. He says, you are going to get to know your Lord by faith or you will not know him at all. Faith in him, trust that is in him, not in his ways. You're trusting the object of the faith. God himself is the object of the faith, not the way that he does things. If you, if you put all your faith in the way that he does things, then you're setting yourself up. See, we need, there's a lot of us need to be pretty real with ourselves and check ourselves and stop demanding that God deliver on promises that he never made. And stop griping about the way he delivers on the promises that he did make. See, he's the holy God of the universe and in our sin, we are nothing like him. And I think if we're gonna be serious people, we need to take our faith seriously because he does not owe us anything except the promises that he makes very clear in scripture. But those passages in scripture, those promises are awesome. I mean, God in scripture is offering this Fort Knox treasury of promises. And we're over here griping because we're not getting pig, uh, pennies out of a piggy bank. Here's just some of the things that God promises, okay? You've, this is just top of my head stuff that I wrote out. To those who believe in his name, he would call children of God. We already talked about that one. If you confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a good one. You might want to mark that one, okay? Um, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Come to me, who are, all who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest. Because he suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are tempted. He comforts us in our affliction. We are co-heirs with Christ. We have riches of his glorious inheritance. He hears our prayers in the spirit that intercedes for us. We have reward in heaven. We have a Holy Spirit living inside of us to guide and comfort and lead and empower us. We belong to the Father and no one can snatch us out of his hand. And he is coming again in glory. And that's just a few of them, right? I mean, let's seek after Fort Knox faith instead of piggy bank promises. And if, if you're not getting things the way that you feel like God wanted you to get them, just read the list of the things that you do have. And I think your perspective will change. Number four. Um, who faith helps? Well, it helps those who believe in him who raised uh, from the dead, Jesus our Lord. See, I really think that if you're the kind of person who believes in a God that can bring things back from the dead and call into existence things that don't exist, you're gonna be a really exciting person to be around. <laughs> now, I think it's even easier for us than it was for Abraham. Abraham was looking forward to the Savior, not knowing that, you know, probably fully understanding about the resurrection. But for us, we look back and we know that the resurrection is the most proven historical fact that we have in history. And so we can look back and we know that God raises the dead. We look back and there's no excuse for us. And so you never know when God is going to take something that is dead and dull and lifeless and touch it by the grace of God and bring it back to life again. You never know that what God could what things that you couldn't possibly hope for, that God is going to call into existence something that doesn't even exist right now. You see, with faith in a God like that, your life is going to be an adventure. So look at verse 22. That's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. 
but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake, but for ours also. See, it's supposed to encourage us. <laughs> it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from, raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. So the same faith that Abraham had, counted as righteous. Don't, isn't that what you want? It will be counted to us who believe, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. See, when we have faith, surrendered trust, like Abraham had, we get God's promises. And that Savior that was coming from Abraham's line, that Savior who would bless the, that he said you'll bless the whole world, that Savior who lived a perfect life is perfect obedience according to the law. The perfection that he lived, the Bible says, has been transferred to us. That's what the crowded and credited means. That when God sees us, he doesn't see this, this messy, sinful life that we lived. He sees Christ's perfection, the total fulfillment of the law, imputed, credited, given to us. So when God sees us, he sees Christ's perfection. That's amazing. <laughs> Way more than that little girl was amazing. Um, but, <laughs> but, and, and when you have faith like that, then you become his offspring. You become a child of God. And you know, just finish with this. Your faith may be the size of a little mustard seed. But I heard a guy one time say that if you got faith like that, you can still move a mountain. And so don't worry because the object of your faith is, is a holy God that is strong and mighty. That ice is thick. And so you just exercise the little faith that you have and you know that he will hold you up. That's why it says here that Abraham grew strong in his faith and he, as he gave glory to God. So it sounds here like the best way to exercise your faith is to praise God and to give him glory so that even when things are difficult, even when you can't see where this is going, even when the relationship is broken, you don't know how it's gonna be mended, even though you, have, you don't know how you're gonna get yourself out of this hole, even though you, um, you're depressed and anxious and, and you, you just are under it and you just don't know how this whole thing is gonna turn around, grow strong in your faith by giving glory to God. Because in verse 21, you can be fully convinced that God is able to do what he promised. See, a lot of times I've thought over my life that being faithful, you know, because the Bible talks about when we enter into heaven, you want to hear good and faithful servant. Welcome into your, my kingdom, good and faithful servant. And I've always thought, well, I just want to be faithful. I just want to be faithful. So I've always thought that like faithful means you finish the task, right? God gives you a job, you do it, you're faithful. But I was like, the more and more I realized, it's like, no, it has probably more to do with being full of faith along the way. Being faithful means being full of faith along the way, not just completing the task because that would be works. No, he wants me to be full of faith and believe him along the way. Believe that he can make dead things alive again. Believe that he can call into existence things that did not exist before and that nothing is too great for the Lord. And if you're that person, if you're in that one of the two groups, if you're in that group, <laughs> your life is gonna be a great adventure as you give him glory. All right, let's pray.